This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good afternoon and welcome. This is the uh, sixth session in a four-part series. You say, how could this be the sixth session in a four-part series? Well, sessions one, two, three, and four were actually contiguous. We had different sessions, and then in session five, we summarized one and two, and in session six, we'll summarize uh, the, what we did in three and four. So welcome to class. This is a Bible study class, and I know that when you have your Bibles out, you will be looking in, and the, the best way to get something out of the class is you need a Bible, a pen, a piece of paper, and fourthly, the back of somebody in front of you. So you simply take your paper, put it on their back, and you take your... No. Um, If you participate in class by opening your Bible, and I know if you are using your phone, you're not texting, you're looking at the text. Um, So, But if you participate by opening your Bible, circling a word, um, taking a note, at the end of your program book, you'll notice that there are some note pages, but the more you actively participate, take the material home, study it, the more you will get out of the class. We're going to look at the concept of the shaking, the sifting, and the final proclamation of God's message on earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you with all of our hearts that Jesus is coming soon. We don't define how soon. It may be sooner than we think, but we do recognize that the great tenor of Scripture is being fulfilled, that the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, of Matthew 24 and Luke 21, are all being fulfilled before our eyes. We thank you that we can live in a generation where we see the fulfillment of prophecy around us. We pray thee that you'd give us eyes to see and wisdom as we study. In Christ's name, amen. In 1876, there was a small group of Methodist believers that wanted to build a church in Swan Quarter, North Carolina. This little group of believers saved And they had their eyes on a particular piece of property. That property was in the center of the city. It was a wonderful piece of property, a prime piece of property, and they really wanted their church there. There was one problem. Mr. Sam Sadler owned the property. And Sam was not about ready to give a church a reduced price for this property. And so when they approached him about purchasing the property, Sam Sadler said, nothing doing, I'm not selling it. They were quite disappointed. So they built their church outside of the city limits. And on September 16, 1876, they were having the church dedication. A hurricane came through Sworn Quarter that day. It poured down rain. The streets flooded. They obviously could not have their church dedication. But there was such flooding that it lifted the church off its moorings. Eyewitness accounts record the church being blown gently down Oyster Creek Road. As the church came down Oyster Creek Road, it made a sharp right turn on Main Street. Don't get ahead of me, please. Made a sharp right turn on Main Street and was blown to the very property that they wanted, Mr. Sam Sadler's property, and the little church sat there. The next day, when the winds abated and the rain came da- stopped flowing and stopped pounding down, Mr. Sam Sadler came out, the church members were around the church, and he said, I give up, I can't fight against God. (laughs) If you would visit Swan Quarter today, and it's an interesting story that you may want to look up on the internet, not while I'm preaching, please, but it's called 
you look up Swan Quarter, North Carolina, the church moved by the hand of God. And the documentation is really, really good. It's not some fictitious tale. It's good documentation. And if you'd visit there today, you'd see, the, you'd see a little stone plaque on it. You, the little white church is still off to the side, but they built over the years a new Methodist church, a, a brick church. And, uh, but the plaque on the side says, the church moved by the hand of God, the church of providence. The devil may do everything he can with storms to destroy God's church in end time. But praise God, God's church is guided by his hand and it will triumph. There is some discussion of will indeed the Seventh-day Adventist church survive? Will the church go into apostasy like other religious movements have gone in? And will God have to call out a remnant of a remnant? One of the things that we're going to do in class today is demonstrate biblically two or three things. First, that the church will face an incredible storm before end time, but that God has his hands on that church and his church will survive. Secondly, we are going to look at how God is going to purify his church at end time and how he's going to use a method different than anything he's ever done before. That one study alone is the answer to every offshoot that ever was or every offshoot that ever will be. This afternoon, as we study the Bible together, we're going to look at a fundamental principle of where offshoots make a tragic mistake and see biblically God's plan to purify his church. Then at the end of our class today, the last 15 or 20 minutes, we're going to look at the Laodicean message and, and share some interesting insights about Laodicea and why Laodicean messages one of the most encouraging in all the Bible, when you understand it in its fullness. Let's go to Matthew, the 16th chapter and the 18th verse. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has taken his disciples and he has taken them beyond the Galilee and they're going north. Matthew, the 16th chapter, you're turning there to, and looking at the 18th verse. In Matthew chapter 16, we look and we're going to start a little earlier than verse 18 so I can give you a setting, so I can give you the background of the passage. We're actually going to start in verse 13, Matthew 16 and verse 13, and then we'll go on to verse 18. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now notice Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. Where is Caesarea Philippi? What was Caesarea Philippi known for? Let's say my finger here is this land of Palestine. In the south, you have Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. About five, six, seven miles from Jerusalem, you have Bethlehem. So that's Judea. Center, of the knuckle of my little finger here, would be Samaria. And the north would be Galilee. So you have three major provinces in Palestine or in Israel. Judea, Samaria, and you have Galilee. If you go north in Galilee, you come to the outpost city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, when you read about Caesarea Philippi, what do you think of immediately when you think of Caesarea? What comes to your mind? Caesar. Philip Caesar. So is that a Greek name or a Roman name? So Caesarea Philippi was, was it a Jewish city predominantly? It was a what? Roman city in the north that was an outpost city that was a Roman military garrison. The Romans believed that the world could be dominated by military might. But there's another interesting thing about Caesarea Philippi. That was the center of Pan worship. Now the god Pan of the Greeks, we have a word we call pantheism. Theism, theism talks about what? God. And pan means what? Nature. So pantheism is seeing God in every aspect of nature. It's, of course, a Greek philosophical heresy where uh, God would be seen in the tree. God would be seen in the plant. Caesarea Philippi was the center of pantheism. It was a center of Greek philosophy 
and there was a temple dedicated to the god Pan there. The Romans believed that the world would be conquered by military might. The Greeks believed that the world would be conquered by philosophy. But there's something else, or intellectualism. So the Romans, power, strength. The Greeks, intellectualism, education, um, philosophy. But then you have the Jews. The Jews had a major temple at Caesarea Philippi because it was there that the fountains of the Jordan River began and the Jews had the idea that water and life were equated and so you have the Mount Hermon and the snows melting coming down the streams of the Jordan and so they built a temple there with the idea that this was the, the, the foundation of Judaism, one of the places, a number of places. Of course, Jerusalem was the center. So Jesus walks. He leaves Capernaum, and he's walking. And his disciples must wonder, where is he going and why? And he walks north, and he sets himself against the backdrop of Roman military might, of Greek philosophy, of formal religion. And what Christ is really saying is that military might is not going to change the world and brilliance of the human mind is not going to change the world and formal religion is not going to change the world but the church of the living Christ built on the foundation of his word is going to change the world. That's what's going on here in Matthew the 16th chapter. So we look. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, so he sets himself against the backdrop of Roman military might, of Greek philosophy, sets himself against the backdrop of of ritualistic formal religion. He asks his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, John who had been killed, and maybe he's risen from the dead, they didn't know. Some say you're Elijah, who was translated without seeing death. Some say you're Jeremiah. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? That's always the question. The question is never what do others say, but what do you, who do you say that I am? Have you come to the place in your life where you've accepted the living Christ and he's transformed you, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father. When we come to the conclusion that Christ is the son of the living God, it's always through the moving of the Holy Spirit. When we give our lives to Christ, He draws us first before we ever come to him. It's flesh and blood has not revealed it, but the spirit. Then he says, and I say to you, you are Peter. The word there is is Cephas or, or, or Petros, which is movable stone. Upon this rock, this Petra, this immovable stone, the fact that I am the son of the living God, I will build my church. Now, some people say that the church is a human bureaucratic institution. In my evangelism, I've had people say to me, I want to accept Christ, but I don't want to accept the church. It's just a lot of bureaucrats that sit in some office taking people's money. But here Jesus said, I will build my church. Who is it that built the church? Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here is the incredible good news. Although the church of Jesus Christ may at times be oppressed or pushed down, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Although the church of Jesus Christ at times may compromise its integrity and depart from its values, Jesus is going to sweep in the last days a mighty revival through his church. He says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the good news is that in the final analysis, Christ is going to win and Satan is going to lose. Now, down through the ages, God had an interesting way of purifying his church. We're talking in this class about the remnant, and we're discussing the question today, will the church survive? Down through the ages, Christ had an interesting way of purifying his church. He always called out from the main body 
those who would be his chosen people. We'll demonstrate that in a few ways in the Old Testament. If you begin with Abraham, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, so the church becomes the called out ones. This is true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Klesia in Greek means called. The verb is to call. Ek means out of. So the very word church in the New Testament for Greek believers, New Testament, of course, written in the Greek language, was called the ekklesia, the ones called out from the larger body. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, you find this concept, this idea in the Old Testament as well. Genesis, the 12th chapter, and looking here at the first verse. It's talking about the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, the idolatry around you is so incredibly great, and the apostasy around you is great. Therefore, I'm calling you out, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm calling you out to be obedient to me and, follow, and keep your commandments. So in Genesis 1, God calls out Abraham to preserve his people. Abraham has sons and daughters, and they have sons and daughters, and there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has a number of children. How many sons particularly? Twelve. And they become the twelve tribes of Israel. And eventually, Israel goes into Egyptian bondage. And to preserve God's truth, God calls Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And you'll find that in the book of Deuteronomy. He calls them to go to a promised land where they can worship without the pagan influences. You'll find that in Deuteronomy. And you'll look there at the sixth verse, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and onward. He says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. He's talking about Israel. The Lord didn't set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number, but the Lord loves you because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. Verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps the covenant and mercy with thousands from generations. So God calls Israel out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but finally gets them to the promised land. The pattern in the Old Testament is very clear. Abraham must be called out to preserve faithfulness. Israel must be called out to preserve faithfulness. Time goes on. God sends prophet after prophet to Israel. Did Israel accept the prophets of God? At times they did, but most of the time they did not. And eventually God sends his son. And did all of Israel rally round and accept Jesus as the Messiah? Quite to the contrary. And eventually Christ is crucified on Calvary's cross, resurrects from the dead, ascends to the sanctuary in heaven, and raises up the New Testament Christian church that he calls out of the larger body of Israel that is apostatized. Now, as a corporate whole, as a body, as a nation, Israel did not accept its Messiah. But individual Israel, as individual Jews, formed the, the, the basis of the Christian church. They were the called out ones, the ones called out by God. And you find that in Acts, the second chapter. In Acts, the second chapter, there is this mighty revival that takes place. 
the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And as it is, God leads 3,000 into the uh, Christian church. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 41, in contrast that with verse 47, uh, Acts 2, verse 41, then those who gladly received God's word were baptized. The same day, there are about 3,000 souls added to them. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the what? The church. And what are the church? The called out ones. So you see, God called out Abraham. God called out Israel. God called out the New Testament Christian church. The Bible defines the New Testament Christian church as the pillar and ground of the truth. As the Christian church was faithful to Christ in the first, second, and third centuries, it grew rapidly. But there came a point where the Christian church grew large, it apostatized. And we have a long period of time known as the Middle or the Dark Ages. In that period of time, we, at the end of that period, you have the Waldenses being faithful to Christ, being raised up to champion the Word of God. God raises up the various reformers like Huss, Jerome, Zwingli, Luther, and Wesley. And God raises up a reform movement to do the same pattern that he's been doing since the days of Abraham. He calls out a body of believers in the Reformation. But as the Reformation continues to go on, there were truths of Scripture that were not restored. Most of the Reformed churches, of course, kept Sunday. Most believed in the immortality of the soul, teachings not found in Scripture. So God raised up a new movement, which he called out of Protestantism. What was that movement called? The Seventh-day Adventists, right? And, and you look at Revelation chapter 18. Again, you find this calling out. So from Genesis to Revelation there is this idea of calling out. You call out the smaller group from the larger movement, and you do that largely to, to preserve truth. And so in Revelation chapter 18, after these things I saw, verse 1, another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, the earth was illuminated with his glory. And then you go down to verse uh, two, he cries mightily, Babylon. What is Babylon? Well, you look at the first four letters of Babylon, B-A-B-Y, baby. Why is a baby called a baby? A baby is called a baby because it babbles. Its speech is confused. So what does Babylon represent? It represents the confusion of man-made religion rather than the revelation of divine truth. And so you look here in verse uh, it talks about Babylon has fallen. Verse 3 is an interesting verse. It says, The nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wine affects the forebrain, conscience, judgment. And it's the wine of false doctrine that has intoxicated the nations of the world, and they don't understand fully truth. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And what is fornication? It's an illicit union. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. So the kings or the political powers of the earth have an illicit union with the church. When the church looks to the state for its power, it becomes beast-like because there is only one head of the church, and the head of that church is Jesus Christ. So here, Revelation chapter 18 is talking about an illicit union between church and state. But another element is brought in, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxuries. So here you have a political, economic, and religious union that's taking place. So Revelation 18 is talking about God's final call, last days of earth's history, where there's a political, economic, and religious union that lines up. But then God makes an appeal, his final appeal, verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying what? Come out of her whom? my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. So again, there's this calling out. There's the apostasy of a larger body called Babylon. There is that calling out. Incidentally, it says, come out of her, my people. Where are many or most of God's people today? They're in Babylon. They're in churches that don't understand the fullness of his love, the majesty of his grace, the 
awesomeness of his truth. And God is giving appeal for them to come. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that salvation comes with a denominational label. We believe that salvation comes to men and women whose hearts are sold out totally for Jesus Christ and who are committed to following his truth wherever it leads. I am a Seventh-day Adventist, not because I was born an Adventist. I was born in a lovely Roman Catholic home. I was educated by the priests and nuns and memorized the Mass in Latin, or at least the portions of it. But when, at 17 years old, I heard the truth of God proclaimed and sensed the revelation of that truth through his word, my life was turned upside down. It was changed. And so I sensed that, that call of God. I'm an Adventist because I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church most rightly reflects the character of God, most accurately reveals the love of God, most powerfully proclaims the cross of Christ, and most clearly reveals God's truth to our world. Now notice from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis Abraham, come out of her. Egypt, Israel, come out of Egypt. New Testament Christianity, come out of the larger body of Israel. Uh, Reformation movement, come out. Uh, last days, apostate Protestantism, Babylon, come out. So you all you have this calling out. Now here's the question. Will there be a calling out from the Seventh-day Adventist Church if it grows large and apostatizes? Will there be a calling out of a smaller remnant? That's the basic question. Now let's let's approach that question in a variety of ways. Number one, if there were a calling out, what would say that movement would not grow large and there would need to be a calling out from it? If you have Adventists and you have Reform Adventists, then you have the Reform, Reform Adventists, then you have the Reform, Reform, Reform Adventists. So there must come a point at which there is no longer a calling out, correct? And what I want to show you today is that a number of things. There is no teaching in the Bible that teaches the remnant of the remnant. Revelation chapter 12 teaches the remnant of her seed. We'll look at the seven churches. You start with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. You go Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Laodicea is the seventh church. You don't have a remnant coming out of Laodicea. God's method in the last days of earth's history is not a calling out of the faithful, but a shaking out of the unfaithful. If you understand what I've just said, it'll save you from a thousand heresies. God's method in the last days of earth's history is not a calling out of the faithful, but it is a shaking out of the unfaithful. Because the wheat and tares grow together until what? The harvest. Offshoots make great capital of the fact of what they perceive to be liberal trends in the church, right? And they try to point those out. The thing that they miss is the clear parable of Jesus. The wheat and tares will grow together till what? The harvest. Now, we looked at the fact that there's a difference between a calling out and a shaking out. And we need to probe that. Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. There is no passage in Scripture that is clearer. No passage in Scripture that is clearer on this shaking out that must be fundamentally clear in our minds. We're looking at Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. God's method of purifying his church today is not a calling out of the faithful, but is a shaking out of the unfaithful. And if you study the shaking carefully, in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White, there are many different things that will cause that shaking. Some are heresies that come into the church that God allows that shake out some. Some are shaken out because they're Laodicean and they're complacent 
and when the test of persecution comes, they go. So there's a variety of agencies that produce an end-time shaking. But Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now, what's that talking about? As we shall see, it's an allusion to Mount Sinai. When God came on Mount Sinai and spoke to Moses, and when he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, there was a shaking, earth shook with the thunderous voice of God. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, Paul is alluding to that. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. That's God at Sinai. So there's law language here. He brings you back to the law of God. Law of God, faith of Jesus, will be, be part of an end-time scenario, conflict. Verse 26, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. What does it mean to shake heaven? Keep going. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken. What happens to the things that are being shaken? What happens to those? Do they stay? They are what, according to Scripture? They're removed. Verse 27. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that be shaken. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The reason we are not interested in any offshoot is they do not remain but they, are shoot, they shoot off. And so God here tells us that a mighty shaking is coming. And there will be multitudes that leave the Adventist church, but there'll be multitudes that come in from churches that are not now called Babylon. There'll be multitudes that come in as they hear the call of God. Verse 28, why do we remain? Why aren't we shaken out? Why do we remain? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, although the shaking comes to God's church, we remain committed to Christ. We remain loyal to God. We remain faithful to his word. Why? Because we know to his little flock he will give the kingdom. We know that the kingdom is coming. We know that the church will triumph in glory. We know that it will arise as fair as the sun, as mighty as an army with banners. We know that his people, according to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, will not have spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We know that Christ has triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell and that the gates of hell will not prevail against his people. Although there will be a mighty shaking, there will be a mighty revival. The Holy Spirit will be poured out, and God will use his people for the finishing of his work. Verse, glasses on, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What is the apostle saying? He is saying, don't let yourself be shaken out. Keep your faith in this living Christ. Let his truth change your life and let nothing shake you out. To this people and to this church, God has sent a last day message. There are four chapters in the book of Revelation that describe God's church. Revelation chapter 10 describes the historic rise of God's church. It describes the fact that God's church would raise, rise up after disappointment. That it would study the prophecies of Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel would be sweet in the mouth, bitter in the belly. And God would raise up a New Testament, God would raise up his church like he did the New Testament movement out of disappointment. Just as the disciples anticipated that Jesus would establish his kingdom on earth. And he didn't do that, and they were bitterly disappointed. He, was, he died on the cross. They misunderstood prophecy. 
They thought the Messiah was going to usher in an eternal kingdom at that point, that Christ was going to vanquish the enemies. Christ died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven. And out of the disappointment of 31 AD, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit from the sanctuary, and the New Testament church was raised up. Fast forward 2,000 years, almost. Fast forward to 1844. Again, Christ's people study prophecy. Again, Christ's people are bitterly disappointed. Again, they look to the sanctuary. Again, the Spirit of God is poured out. And again, God raises up an end-time movement out of disappointment. So Revelation 10 describes the church that rises out of disappointment. It's the historic rise of God's church. Revelation 12 describes the identifying characteristics of God's church, that God's church at the time of the end would be guided by the gift of prophecy, that it would be a Christ-centered, Bible-believing movement keeping the commandments of God and also the Sabbath. So Revelation 10 summarized is the historic rise of God's church. Revelation 12 is the identifying characteristics of God's church. And Revelation 14, third chapter on the true church in Revelation, is the message of the true church, the message of the three angels. But the condition of the true church, Laodicea, is found in Revelation 3. And so we want to take our Bibles and turn, and for the rest of the time we have in class, we want to look at Revelation 3, verse by verse. The church at Laodicea is the last of the seven churches. One of the most favorite, one of the favorite places I love to travel is the Middle East. And uh, I, going to these biblical sites really gives you some amazing insight. I've been traveling to the Middle East for many years. And uh, when I first started going to Laodicea, it was not excavated. I used to love that site, I think, even more than I do today, because we'd tromp around Laodicea and Nobody went there. It was kind of in an out-of-the-way place. But about five years ago, the University of Pamukkale in uh, Turkey began to excavate at Laodicea. And it is true they've excavated a lot, but it doesn't have the primitiveness of the site it used to have. When I used to go to the stadium there, I mean, grass was growing up through the stones and so forth. Laodicea was a city of about 100 to 120,000 people. Now, here's how you tell the, the population of an ancient city. When the archaeologists excavate, one of the easiest things to excavate are the stadiums, because the stadiums are largely above-ground stadiums, of course, and the stadiums are usually partially preserved even before excavation. If you look at the size of the stadium, which is fairly easy to estimate, you can estimate how many people sat in this stadium. In, uh, in um, Laodicea, it's about 9, 10, 11,000 and you multiply that by 10, you'll pretty much get the population of the city. So Laodicea, if you look at the stadium, 9,000, 10,000 would seat in the stadium, you'd have about 100,000. You go to Ephesus, the stadium seats about 15,000, 16,000, that's a city of about 160,000. These were no backwater, backwater cities. One of the things that impresses me particularly about Paul, Paul who went to Philippi, Paul who went to Thessalonica, Paul who went to Athens, Paul who went to Corinth, Paul who went to Ephesus, he tackled the most difficult, sophisticated cities of his day. He went into those cities and took them for Jesus. When you look at Laodicea, Laodicea was known for three things. First, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It had its own banking industry. And Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 60. And when it was, because the Romans appreciated the city so much, Laodicea got rich because it was on a trade route. And uh, the road went from east to west, and there was also a north-south road. And so Laodicea was at the hub of commercial empire, and it had its own banking industry. In fact, one of the Roman governors was traveling and needed a loan. And so he went to the bank of Laodicea to get a loan. Uh, they were so rich. So anyway, an earthquake destroys Laodicea in AD 60. And the Roman government appreciated Laodicea so much, it said, okay, guys, we are going to rebuild your city for you from the coffers of Rome. And you know what the folk at Laodicea said? They said, forget it. We got enough money to rebuild our own city. Keep your money, Rome. And they rebuilt Laodicea out of their own money. So when you think of Laodicea, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about wealth. You're thinking about arrogance. 
you're thinking about self-inflated importance, one of the great cities of the day. Now, the second thing about Laodicea was that it was a fashion bazaar. Any ladies here like to shop? Any ladies here that don't like? Well, there may be a few. Um, It was a fashion bazaar. One of the things about Laodicea was that they produced a special type of wool. And it was the rage of the day. It was black, and they also had some wool. They dyed purple. And the ladies in Rome loved it. So when their husbands were traveling, they would go shopping in Laodicea to bring these woolen togas back to uh, Rome or the other cities. So Rome was known for its clothing. It was known for its money. It also, ha- rather, Laodicea. It also, Laodicea also had a, um, a university, a medical university in Laodicea. And you know what they produced? Isav, the Pergain Isav. It was a little, it was, it was made of a powder, and they'd mix it with water, and it'd be a paste that was fairly effective for eye diseases. So Jesus says, you think you're wealthy? You got the banking industry? You think... You are clothed because you're a fashion place. You think you are, you can see because you got the medical universities. I got good news for you. You're blind and wretched and naked. Now Jesus introduces and uses Laodicea as an example. Each of the seven churches have a message relevant to the first century. Laodicea was a real church that really did become lukewarm in its spirituality. But this church represents his church at the end of time that would also be lukewarm in its spirituality. Why do we use the term lukewarm for Laodicea? What what evidence is there that there was lukewarm water? Not far from Laodicea, there was Hierapolis, six miles, eight miles across the valley. Hierapolis had mineral springs of mineral waters. You go there today, when I used to go there 10 years ago, 15 years ago, weren't so many hotels, you could wade in the springs a lot better. But today, you know what they did? Build a lot of tourist hotels, siphoned off the water so it's hot mineral springs. So when you go to the hotel, you can take a hot mineral bath, but the original springs are not nearly flowing with as much water today. But you can look across the valley from Hierapolis to Laodicea, and there's what's called travertines. Travertines are like, they're like, they're like open pipes. You know, if you have a pipe that's kind of like this, and you cut off the top so the pipe is more U-shaped, it doesn't have the top on it. And, they, and the travertines would take the lukewarm water, the hot water from Hierapolis, and it would go across the valley, but by the time it came to Laodicea, it would be very lukewarm, and a lot of sulfur in it. It was almost undrinkable. I suppose they had to have some way of treating it. So Laodicea, wealthy, sophisticated, educated, wealthy, sophisticated, educated, fashion bazaar, uh, lukewarm water, arrogant, proud. Laodicea thinks it has need of nothing. God uses that to describe his last day church. And he describes his last day church as this way that his church would be apathetic. It would be complacent. It would lose the passion for mission in many areas. It would look inward rather than outward. It could become self-focused. Prayer at times would become an external form. Bible study would lose its passion. And so when he describes Laodicea, that's the description. But here is the incredible good news. There is no no message in the Bible that is more encouraging than the Laodicea message, and I'll show you why. Take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 3. We start at Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans. Now the word Laodicea means, that word literally means, the word does not mean lukewarm. I've had some people say, oh, the word Laodicea means lukewarm. Not so. It means a people adjudged. So Laodicea is the seventh church. There is no church called out of Laodicea. It is the church of the judgment hour. Generally speaking, it has become complacent, apathetic, and lost its sense of mission. 
So God wants to bring a mighty revival. And, let, and we'll see what he does. These things says the... I need to have somebody help me with the last part of verse 14. These things says the what? The what? Amen. When do you use amen? At the beginning, right? When do you use amen? Jesus says there's Ephesus, there's, there's Smyrna, there's Pergamos, there's Thyatira, there's Sardis, there is Philadelphia, there's Laodicea, and then there is what, everybody? There is what? Uh, there's no church coming out of Laodicea because Jesus says amen. And for all those people that say the remnant's going to come out of the remnant and God's going to call people out of Adventism, when Jesus says it is amen, I say amen. Amen. That was right. Amen. All right. Now, these things says the amen. So Jesus says, after Laodicea, there is no other movement. After Laodicea, there's amen. Then it says, Christ is the faithful and true witness. What does it mean that Christ is the faithful and true witness? Oh, God, forgive me. You know what I used to think that meant? That Christ is faithfully and truly witnessing of all my sins so he can reveal them in the judgment. That is certainly not biblical. What does it mean that Christ is the faithful and true witness? Who is he the faithful and true witness of? Remember when Philip came and Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say to Philip? If you have seen me, you have seen what? The Father. Jesus walked the dusty streets of Galilee and he touched the eyes of the blind and they were opened. Touched the ears of the deaf and they were unstopped. He was the faithful and true witness of the Father's love. Mary is caught as his, thrown at his feet in adultery. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's the faithful and true witness of forgiveness. The demoniacs come to him and he casts them out. He's the faithful and true witness of the power of God. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness of the Father. And what does Laodicea need more than anything else? A vision of the faithful and true witness. To see what God is really like. To see God is, as not the vindictive judge and the wrathful tyrant that Satan has made him out to be. But to see God as one that cares, God that loves. To see a great big God that can help them over the hurdles of life and the challenges of life. So to Laodicea, Christ says, I'm the Amen. This is the last church, the last movement. And to this church, I will be revealed as the faithful and true witness. And charmed by my love, and changed by my power, there'll be a mighty revival that sweeps through my people. We continue. Notice, verse 14, last part, in the beginning of the creation of God. Now that confuses some people. Is Christ... Did Christ come forth as the beginning of the creation of God? Was he the first one that God created? I'm going to pause and just give you a little hint on some of the things that are happening in Adventism today, but I can't spend a lot of time developing this, but I'll give you a seed thought. There are those people that will take a text like this and misinterpret it, take a text like that Christ was begotten of the Father. Every time the Bible uses begotten, it's the incarnation. He's coming into the world. There'll be those people that say, any idea of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as separate beings eternally, that's kind of paganism. And they'll have the idea that God is one. He kind of begot Jesus. There was a time evidently that Jesus was not, they will say, and he came forth in the Father. And they'll say the Holy Spirit is some kind of force, and not the third person of the Godhead. I want to just give you one line of reasoning. I could give you 50 texts that prove that that is untrue, that Christ is eternal. John 8, 58, Jesus says, I am the I am. He's eternal. The Greek word is ego me. I've existed from eternity. But here's something just to reason about. When you talk to those people, this is what they'll say to you, that there is some point in the past where Christ proceeded forth from the Father, but that point in the past is so far in the past that you can't conceive of what it is. So here's what I have said to them. 
Okay, let's assume that is true. There's a point in the past, for purpose of discussion, that Jesus came forth from the Father. Let's, let's, that means that he didn't exist longer than he existed. Because if you take me to that point in the past that is so far distant, that still is a punctiliar point in time, right? However far back it is, it is a point in time, correct? But if infinity is infinity, it has no beginning, correct? Therefore, Jesus didn't exist, if you take that reasoning, more than he existed, right? Therefore, he does not have eternal life and he can't give it to you. Where that philosophy leads, if you take it, they won't admit that, but that's where it has to lead. Because only an eternal Christ can offer you eternal life. Only one with no beginning can offer you a life with no ending. That was free. I just threw that part in. Okay, now, i got to get back and teach you. All right. Beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean? Why is that powerful? Beginning of the creation of God. The word here, beginning, is arche. It is the beginner, the first cause in all God's creation. It is not that Christ is the beginning of the creation of God in the sense that it was, he was created first. It is the sense that he began all God's creation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We want to look at that, then we want to say, how does this apply to the Laodicean message? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3. The preacher got sidetracked, so I've got to move now. I was going slow. When I was young, I used to go real fast, but I got older, and so I go a little slower now. All right, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. We're going to look there at verse 9. Here we go, Ephesians 3, verse 9. We're going to look at verse 8 and 9. To me, Paul says, who who are less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. God did what through Jesus? He created all things through Jesus. Here's the Laodicean message. God writes to the Laodicea. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm the one that reveals what God is really like. I'm the one that reveals grace and mercy and forgiveness. And this grace of God blowing through the Adventist church will create a mighty revival. Then he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Why does he say that to Laodicea? This reason. He says, I'm, if I am all-powerful, and if I'm the creator, and if I can speak in light, chases away darkness. If I can speak and the earth is carpeted with living green. God says, if I can speak and and, and animals appear, if I can speak and worlds come into existence and light comes into existence, if I can speak and fruit trees produce their fruits, if I am the all-powerful creator, I can recreate your heart. For everybody that is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, is a new what? Creation. So God wants creation to take place all over again in your heart. The answer to Laodicea is the living Christ who recreates within the hearts of men and women his image. It is this living Christ who recreates within our hearts a love for others and a passion for witness and a passion for vision. And so the Laodicean message is the most exciting message in the Bible because it does not depress us. It reveals to us the true nature of God's church And it speaks about the faithful and true witness that will show us what God is like. It speaks about the all-powerful creator that will change our lives. Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Notice what happens. He spews them out of his mouth. What is this called? This is the shaking where they go out and they don't remain. So the Laodicean message that talks about the spewing out is not the rejection of the movement. It's rather the spewing out or the shaking out those that do not accept the counsel of the true witness. What is the counsel of the true witness? I counsel me to buy of the gold tried in the fire. Verse 18. What is gold tried in the fire? Let's look at each of these symbols and see what they are. Jesus is knocking on the door of Laodicea. 
he is prepared to initiate a mighty spiritual revival. And Jesus gives us counsel. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. What is that? First Peter. What is gold tried in the fire? First Peter. And you're going to look there. Second Peter. It moved. Yes. We want to look at a couple of the Peters. What is gold tried in the fire? We're going to look at 2 Peter and 1 Peter. We don't want to leave 1 Peter out, but we've got to get in 2 Peter as well. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, keep your finger there. Now go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. And now look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. We're going to compare those two verses. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes, is tested by fire, may be found in praise and honor and glory. What is the gold? I count you to go buy me gold tried in the fire. It's faith that has been tested by trial. Have you had your faith tested by trials? And have you hung on to Christ in spite of that? I counsel you to buy me gold tried in the fire. What is he saying? Translation. I counsel you to hang on no matter what test you go through. I counsel you to trust me no matter what challenges you face. Because I'm going to develop within you a faith to get you through end time. Because when every earthly support is cut off, the only thing you will have is your bedrock faith and trust in God. So he says, I counsel you to buy me gold tried in the fire. What is gold tried in the fire? It is faith that works by love. It is a trust in God that is so deep that nothing can shake us from him and his movement. How do we develop this faith that works by love? How is it that our faith in God is dramatically increased? That's where 2 Peter chapter 2 comes in, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Has God given us the promises of his word? Are they precious? Are they more than precious? Are they great and precious? Are they more than great and precious? Are they exceeding great and precious? that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. How do we become partakers of the divine nature? Through the promises of God. How do the promises of God relate to faith in God? When I read the Old Testament and see Moses and the children of Israel fleeing from Egyptian bondage, And I see and read in Exodus how God opened the Red Sea. I say, God, if you open the sea for them, you can open the way before me. When I read how God guided Israel with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, I say, God, you can guide me. When I see Israel's hunger and God raining manna down from heaven, I read the precious promises of God's word. And I say, God, you can rain manna down in my life. When I see Jesus touching the eyes of the blind and opening them, I say, Jesus, touch my eyes and help me to see divine realities as I read your word. When I see Jesus unstopping the ears of the deaf, I can say, Lord, unstop my ears as well. So reading the precious promises of God's word is life transformational, and it develops our faith. And we have a faith that what? Is more precious than what? Gold. He goes on here in the book of Revelation, and he says, I counsel you to buy me gold tried in the fire, and that you may be rich. 
So the richness of faith is greater than all the riches of Laodicea. Then he says, and white garments. What are the white garments? Revelation, the 19th chapter. What are the white garments? Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad. Be glad and rejoice. Revelation 19, 7. Give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if you look at the progression, gold, white linen, ISAV. The gold is a faith. Gold has to do with the inner relationship with Christ in which I know him as a friend and I trust him. What is faith? Faith is a relationship with God as a friend well-known. So do I will trust him implicitly to do whatever he asks and go wherever he follows. Faith is an internal quality in which I trust God implicitly. What is the white linen? The white linen is the corresponding result of faith in which the righteousness of Christ imparted to me reveals in my life a character difference. That's why Revelation 19 verse 9 says, to her is granted to be arrayed in white linen, clean and bright, for the right fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What does Laodicea need? A faith that leads to positive action in Christ-like works. So the fine linen has to do with positive choices based on faith empowered by the righteousness of Christ that transform our lives. What about the ISAV? I conclude with this. The ISAV is the divinely anointed vision. So I see the world as Christ sees the world. And I have a passion for the world like Christ has a passion for the world. Faith within leads to good works without. ISAV has to do with a missionary drive, a concern for the world that Christ has, the openness to the Spirit, and the infilling of the Spirit, empowering by the Spirit. So then let's summarize as we conclude our class. What have we discovered? We discovered that God is a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've discovered that throughout the ages, God has called people out of his movement. But there has to come a point where there'll be an amen. Is there an amen? Where is it found? Right after the book, of, right after Laodicea, right? There's an amen. So there's no remnant that comes out of that. There's an amen there. And what does God do? He spews out, which is a shaking out the Laodicean complacent ones. They go out. But God then has a mighty revival in his church. And in that church, there's a rediscovery of faith, trust in God. The righteousness of Christ brings a great revival, and men and women are changed. Their actions demonstrate their inner faith, and he touches their eyes, so he sees the world as, so they see the world as he sees the world. And they have a passion to go out and witness for Christ. I want that gold, don't you? I long that my life reveal the righteous acts. Of the, belief, of the people of God and of Jesus. And I long to have my eyes touched so the world, so I can see the world as he sees it and go out to proclaim his eternal message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that your word is clear. Thank you so much that there's an answer to every offshoot that ever was or ever will be. That the naysayers misunderstand the book Thank you that there will be a mighty revival among your people. And that revival will come from the faithful and true witness, the one who reveals God's love and grace and righteousness. That revival will come from the mighty creator who can recreate our hearts. Lord, we long for the gold, the faith, the inner faith, the trust in you no matter what. We long that your righteousness be revealed in our lives 
We long that the ISAV touches our eyes, that we can go out and witness for you from here to eternity. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for coming to class today. Enjoy the rest of your Sabbath. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.